the New King James Version, Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he think that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Brother Eddie. I suppose as long as the church has been in existence, there has been discussion, uh, debate, uh, sometimes arguing over the roles of grace, faith, and works in salvation. There are some Bible books that address those issues. Book of Romans, Book of Galatians, both of those come immediately to mind as letters in which Paul addresses that issue. How do you harmonize all of that? How do you harmonize the concept of salvation by grace that is appropriated by faith and the role of works or obedience in that whole process? And not all Christians in the process of those debates, not just in the first century, but in recent years too, not all Christians have avoided extremes in, in that. Uh, in that discussion. And that seems to be true, unfortunately, with, with practically uh, every uh, theological discussion or biblical discussion about certain doctrines and topics. You'll, you'll, some, most of the time you'll find extremes where people will, uh, will really strongly emphasize one side to the, to the disregard of the other side, and then others will, will fully engage in this side with disregarding the other side. And, and our goal should be to simply have a properly balanced biblical view of things. If the servant, as if he, the master, is now in debt to the servant. Look at verse 9. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No. His point is, a servant serves the master. It's not the other way around. The master is never indebted to the servant because that's the nature of the relationship. And so even when the servant has completed all of his duties, he's tended the sheep, he's plowed the field, he's fixed the meal, and all of his daily responsibilities are done, when all of that is through, the master does not act toward the servant as if he now owes the servant something. The servant remains the servant. The master remains the master. Even when the servant has completed all of his duties, that relationship does not change. 
the one is now not in, the, in debt to the other. Make sense? Now, the explanation is in verse 10. Here's how Jesus applies that principle. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, <clears throat> say this, we are unworthy, unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty. So Jesus explains then in a very similar manner. When he makes the application to us, the application is the same to us as it was in the hypothetical story. When we have done everything that's been commanded of us, if you were to take all of the commandments of God in Scripture and you were to lay them out one after the other, and you put a little box next to each line, and if you could go down that list, and check off each box. And you work your way all the way down the list. And you check off the last thing. Would God still be master? Yeah. Would I still be servant? Yep. Would God owe me something? No. Would God be indebted to me? No. He would still be master. I would still be servant. And those are the component parts. Let's go back and kind of put the pieces together from the parable and, and make some additional application. Of course, obviously, as we think to apply this, the master is God. He is the creator. We are the created. We are the ones that owe our very existence to him, to his power to His ability. It is He that made us, and not we ourselves. To quote Psalm 100, verse 3. And because He's the Creator, He has authority over us. He has all authority over us. In Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, Paul asks the question, Will what is molded say to its molder, will what has been formed, he's using the analogy of, of, of potter and, and clay, will the thing that has been formed say to that which formed it, why did you make me this way? Well, that sounds kind of um, outlandish, right? That that would even happen. But he's making a point. How could that which has been formed say to that which formed it, wait a minute, you didn't do this right. Why did you make me this way? Why doesn't that happen? Why can't that happen? Because one is the creator and the other is the created. And by that very relationship, the created does not have the authority to question the creator. That's us. We don't have that ability. We have the physical ability, but we don't have the ability to do it with His approval. We don't have the authority to do it. He exercises His authority over us, but He does it with compassion and concern for us. And that's another important thing to remember. So yes, God has all authority over us, but He's not dictatorial 
and tyrannical. He exercises his authority with compassion. God is love, 1 John 4, verse 8. He invites us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. His commandments are not burdensome, 1 John 5, verse 3. So God is the master in the parable of Luke 17. And, of course, the servant represents the Christian. We are a servant to whomever it is we yield ourselves in obedience. Paul makes the point, Romans 6, verse 16. You not know that to whom you yield yourselves to obedience, his servant you are whom you obey. Whether that is of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. In other words, whoever it is that we yield ourselves to, that's whose servant we are. So if we've yielded ourselves to God, then we are his servant. God is our master. And the attitude of the servant is seen in us when we recognize that even if we could render to God perfect obedience, I believe that's hyperbole because God understands that we're never going to do that. We're never going to be perfect on our own. We're never going to be sinless. But just for the sake of argument, he says, even if we could do that, even when we have done everything that we've been commanded to do, our attitude should still be an attitude of humility. Because we're still the servant. We're still beholden to our master. and We're in no position to make demands of him. We're just not. Now let's summarize the lessons. What are some of the things that this parable teaches us? We've touched on some of them a little bit already. Let's flesh them out just a little bit. First of all, we've got to remember that we are servants of God because we've been purchased by God. God owns us. We are God's in two senses, if you're a Christian. There's one sense in which everybody is is God's, in a sense. Because God's responsible for having created us. In other words, we owe our existence to Him. And, and therefore, everybody should be a servant to God. He's the potter, we're the clay. Right? So we belong to God in a general sense by way of creation, because He's responsible for our existence. But Christians belong to God in a special sense that doesn't apply to people who aren't Christian. We belong to God not just by means of creation, but we belong to God by means of re-creation. Because we have embraced the Son of God. We've devoted our lives to Him, and we have been born anew, as we studied this morning in John chapter 3. And so because... We are among those that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. We belong to Him. He purchased the church with His own blood. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, saying that we do not belong to ourselves. When he asked the rhetorical question, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 
You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And some translations add, and in your spirit which belong to God. So Paul's point there is you don't belong to yourself. You belong to Him. You've been purchased. You've been bought. The price was the blood of Jesus. And with that price, you've been purchased. And so because of that, we belong to Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, We thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And he died for all, verse 15, 2 Corinthians 5. He died for all that they which live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sakes died and rose again. If you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, if you're in the body of Christ, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him. That's why he is to have rule and authority over every aspect of our lives. We are his servants. And so if it's my personal life, he has authority over that. If it's my marriage, he has authority over that. If it's my working relationships, he has authority over that. He has authority over every aspect of our lives because we belong to Him now. Now, that shouldn't be a distasteful thing or an unpleasant thing or a scary thing because, as we've already noted, God exercises His authority with compassion. He loves us. He cares for us. He wants what's best for us. But we still have to remember that we are servants because He purchased us. And as servants... There are commands that we have a duty to keep. So let's not swing to the, to the extreme direction of denying this. And that's where some have gone in this debate uh, over the years. Some have gone to the extreme of, try, of emphasizing so much God's grace that they have devalued and de-emphasized the role of obedience. As servants, we must obey God. God has never in Scripture condemned the keeping of commandments. Now, there is an element to the keeping of commandments that God has condemned, and we'll note that in a, more, in a moment, but it has nothing to do with keeping the commandments themselves. It has to do with one's attitude toward keeping commandments. But the actual keeping of commandments is not condemned by God. It, how could it be and maintain the relationship of servant to master? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John fourteen fifteen. You are my friends, Jesus said, if you do whatsoever I command you. John fifteen fourteen. So God's never condemned that disposition that says, I want to do everything that God has commanded that I do, and everything that God desires that I do. As a matter of fact, keeping the commandments of God is referred to in love terminology. In 1 John 5, verse 3, John writes, For this is the love of God, that you keep His commandments. 
And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous. They're not, in other words, they're not so difficult that we can't do them. So when you talk about what it means to love God, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John says, this is the love of God, that you keep His commandments. And so we as servants need to have that attitude toward God, that whatever it is that God says, that's what I want to do. Because I recognize my role. And my role is servant. His role is master. But now let's guard against the other extreme. We already talked about how some have gone to the extreme of so emphasizing grace and mercy that they have neglected the concept of commandment keeping and, and, and basically said, you don't have to worry about that. Well, that's extreme and it's wrong. But there are others who have become so, so obsessed by the keeping of commandments and obedience that they basically created a scenario in which people have begun to believe, even if they don't say it, they seem to develop this attitude that it's by my perfect keeping of commandments that I'm going to be justified. And so they've devalued the role of grace. That also is extreme. So while we must do our best to do what God has instructed us to do, keep His commandments, we also have to remember that keeping the commandments of God does not place God in our debt. That we don't, we don't earn anything by keeping commandments. And that's where God has offered words of censure in the context of keeping commandments. Not that keeping commandments itself is bad, but when we look at commandment keeping as the basis, the foundation of our justification, then we have wrongly emphasize the role of keeping commandments. The basis and foundation of our salvation is the grace of God. We would be nowhere, spiritually speaking, without God's grace. We can't keep enough commandments to place God in our debt. We can't keep enough commandments to earn our salvation. Our salvation is ultimately going to be because God, as our Master, is gracious and merciful to us. And so let's avoid the extreme of thinking that we can earn salvation. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's not by merit that we're saved. It's because we trust God. And our trust is visible when we show that trust in our desire to do what God wants us to do. But we're, we're, but we're going to do that imperfectly. We're not going to obey God perfectly. Try as we might. Through weakness of the flesh, we're going to sin from time to time. But if my salvation is based on my perfection, then we're all lost. And there's no hope for any of us. So I'm going to do everything I can to be obedient to God. And everything, I'm going to try my hardest to do that, but I'm going to recognize that if I'm ultimately saved, it's not going to be because I was perfect. It's not going to be because I kept every command. It's going to be because God is merciful and gracious to me. And because I trusted Him for my salvation and didn't trust in myself for it. Look with me right quickly. Hold your place in Luke 17. Turn over to Romans chapter 9. 
Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> Paul in this section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, is addressing how basically, by and large, the Jewish population had rejected Jesus. And that the Gentile population had, by and large, been more accepting of the gospel than the Jews had been. But he's making the point that just because most of the Jewish population had rejected Jesus, that didn't mean that they had to stay in that condition. They could still be saved. And that the Gentiles could still be lost if they turned their back on their previous em embracing of the gospel. And so he's, he's talking about how God has brought Jew and Gentile into one body when, when both have embraced the gospel and, and how all of that process of justification came about. A lot, it's a very deep section, one of the more difficult sections in the New Testament. But it's in that context that we read these words in Romans 9. Look at verse 30 beginning. What shall we say then? In other words, Paul's going to try to wrap up this particular section, summarize the lessons. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But here's the key. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. The Jews, he said, were pursuing righteousness through their law. But he said they didn't achieve the goal of attaining righteousness, even though they were pursuing it through a law that would have led them there. But it didn't get them there. So they were pursuing righteousness, but they didn't achieve it. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. See, that was the problem. The Jewish people had pursued righteousness through the law, but they were pursuing it as if that pursuit were based on and rooted in merit. They were trying to earn salvation. And because they didn't pursue God on the basis of faith, trusting in God, obedient trust in God, and not trust in their own perfection, he said that's why they didn't attain the righteousness that they sought. Because they were seeking it by merit instead of by faith. Now folks, that's what we have to guard against too. If we try to pursue God and reach God based upon my own meritorious goodness. And friend, you're going to fail. You're going to fail every time. And so will I. Because even if we try to be perfect, we're never going to be. We're going to sin. So how am I ever going to be saved? If I can't be perfect, if as hard as I try, I end up disobeying God periodically, how am I ever going to be saved? Because God is basing your salvation not on your ability to be perfect, but on whether or not you're trusting Him for your salvation instead of trusting yourself. What does that trust look like? Well, it looks like somebody who tries to do what's right. That trust looks like somebody who wants to obey, who tries to obey. 
who has an attitude toward God that God is the master and I'm the servant and I'm going to try to do everything that He wants me to do. But I recognize that I'm not going to do that perfectly. And so I'm going to trust that God's going to save me because He promised He would if I trust Him to save me. You see, there's the balance. It's not all grace and no works. It's not all works and no grace. It's pursuing God and obeying Him as best we can because we recognize that He's master and I'm servant. But that when all is said and done, I can pillow my head at night with confidence and faith and trust and comfort and peace because I know that God, because He's gracious and because Jesus died for me, that that God is not going to expect me to earn my salvation by being perfect. He just wants me to be faithful. And I can do that. And faithfulness is not human perfection. Faithfulness is trusting God and doing our best to do as God would have us to do. And so our resolve should be, I will do whatever God has demanded of me because He loves me, because I'm His servant, and I will forever and always be indebted to Him. But even my best efforts could never lift me above servant status. So whatever good gifts I receive from God, including salvation... They are gifts that are a result of His deep love and His immeasurable grace, not because I'm perfect. It is one of life's greatest honors to be an ordinary, common slave in the household of my Lord and King. If I were to work tirelessly every day for a thousand years, I would not be able on my last day with my dying breath say, I have paid my debt. I could only say, I am an unprofitable servant. I have merely done what my duty has been. But God has promised His unprofitable servants an abundant entrance into the everlasting and heavenly kingdom. 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Why? Because we recognize that we are the servant and He is the Master. And when we recognize that, and when we practice that, God recognizes and takes account of our weakness, and He takes account of the fact that we are trusting in Him to save us, and not trusting in ourselves to earn that salvation. That's why the gospel is good news. And that's why the gospel should be something that attracts people to it not turns people away from it. So where are you tonight? What is your attitude toward God? Do you view yourself as a servant and God as the master? And because of that, are you doing your best to do everything that God wants you to do? If you're not, you need to rethink how you view God and how you view yourself. But if you have that proper servant's attitude, and you're showing that servant's attitude by your desire to live the way God wants you to live, then be thankful that God's grace and the blood of Christ is applied to your spiritual account so that on occasions when you do stumble and fall, 
as we all will, even the best of us, even with the best of intentions, be thankful that God, your master, is also a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And that when you come to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that good news? First John 1 John 1.9. But if you're, net, if you're not yet a part of the body of Christ, then that blessing is not yours. Not now. It can be. If you'll come out of the world, be added to the body of Christ by your obedience to the gospel. If we can help you do that tonight, baptize you into Christ based on your faith in Jesus and your willingness to turn from your sins, then let us do that. If we may pray for you as a Christian to be stronger, to be more faithful, and more loyal than you have been in the past, we invite you to come. Let us know what your need is as we stand together and sing.